Hi, I'm Jacqueline Kinser, and for the past five years, I've been helping families all around the globe to overcome their breastfeeding challenges. And this is the first non-clinical breastfeeding podcast that shows you how to rock breastfeeding and master motherhood through practical tips, mindset shifts, and honest conversation to create a confident and empowering breastfeeding journey. This is the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Giselle Tadros. Uh, We have Dr. Gigi, as she's known here. She is a tongue-tie oral motor specialist, a body worker, and a baby development expert. And we are so blessed to have her on the podcast today. And we're going to be talking a lot about tongue ties, how they affect not only ability for a baby to breastfeed, but how it can impact their development, their temperament, their sleep, and so much more. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jacqueline. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I would actually love for our listeners to hear, and I'm curious too, how you got into the world of tongue ties and a little bit more about your professional background. Yes, um, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so excited to be here. Um, So with the tongue tie world, um, I had been working in as a PT for about 20 years um, now it's been 20 years, but around, um, and then I was doing just regular pediatric physical therapy. I was working in the schools and I was working with babies, um, in the preemies, um, in the NICU and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I had a friend who was a IBCLC and she came to me one day and she said, I know that you're so great with all the babies and I really need somebody. Um, do you think that you could maybe help out with doing some of this body work that we need and retraining so some of these babies can feed correctly? And so I'd actually never heard of it. Um, but once I started taking courses, so I agreed that I would look into it and it took me two or three years to get all my certifications done. And I just found it so rewarding. Every time I went to a course, I realized that this, all this stuff was right up my alley in terms of physical therapy. We know how to turn on muscles, how to turn off muscles, how to stretch muscles, how to lengthen the spine, how to do all these kinds of things. Um, and I just, you know, I, I was surprised that there wasn't more physical therapists doing this. Um, and we just hit the ground running and there's no turning back. Um, and interestingly enough, I feel like it was, I say that it's like a dripping faucet, like, once people hear that you're doing this, you just get calls and calls and calls because there's just such a need for this work. And um, there's so many IBCLCs that just, you know, call me out of the blue because they're so interested in the work that I'm doing. And it's just so necessary for all the babies. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And I know I've definitely done that with some of the body workers in my area and invited them to, you know, come to appointments with me so they could learn more and, and collaborate to help these babies. And I love what you said, because one of the things that I always look at when I work with uh, the babies that I work with is I'm watching how their muscles are moving, their posture, 
you know, their, their coordination of their suck and their swallow and their breathing and all of that. And I can tell what's going wrong. I just don't know how to fix it. And that's where you come in, but I know what muscles are supposed to be firing in what ways and what that should look like, what that should feel like. So when I, I can even tell from a video often, I can have a mom send me a little video clip of baby nursing and I know, Oh, this, this, and this is wrong, which helps you, right? Because you may not know exactly everything about breastfeeding that I know. And then we work as a team. So I'd love for you to talk about why that team approach is needed and what you see when the team isn't collaborating and care. Like, are there some downsides if, you know, the family only gets the body work or only gets the lactation support or only gets the phrenectomy? Yeah, that's such an important point. And, um, I find, and I'm sure you find as well, that the kids that do the best and see the best results are the ones that really have a team approach. Um, and so when I first got into the field, um, it was Michelle Emanuel that I trained with. She said, now go out and find your team. You know, you have to have an IVCLC on your team. You have to have a good um, provider that's going to release the oral tissue and release that tension. Um, and of course, you have to have the oral motor piece as well as the body worker piece because um you know just just stretching the tissue isn't going to help them figure out how to suck correctly and also sometimes there's a lot of underlying tightness there but if you're just addressing the oral motor part the rest of it also is going to suffer so as a PT, I can address both, but I do um, also like to call on the IBCLCs and they'll come sometimes to my office and we'll do a joint appointment. So I will do all the muscle re-education and the neuromuscular piece and stretch the babies a little bit, do some tummy time, and then the IBCLC comes in and works for magic. Um, like you said, I'm not an IBCLC. Um, what I know, I've just learned from observation, but you guys are the ones that can like magically put it all together. Um, I do find that the IBCLCs call me and say, we've tried everything we can and it's just not working. So, you know, when I look at the baby very quickly, again, I could see that the muscles aren't functioning correctly. Um, they're not using them, the timing and all that thing like that you were saying about sequencing and suck, swallow, breathe. Um, and then we can actually go in and change that. Yes, that is so true. And, you know, I always try to be really upfront with my clients. Uh, you know, sometimes we get to a point in the appointment when I go, hey, I've done everything I could do. Yes, the latch is better, but it's still not quite there. Here's why. Here's what I'm seeing. And this is why we need to have you continue with body work and then continue working with me until we see like the full resolution of things. Because, yeah, there's only so much each one of us can do. And we do really need an approach. Um, that works collaboratively. And I love having open communication. And I know my clients do too, because if you're a new mom and you've got this little baby that you're holding in your arms, you know, 80% of the day or whatever, last thing you want to do is be on the phone all the time or sending emails back and forth and this and that. So I always, you know, try to just say, Hey, here's what I saw. And the body workers I work with, it sounds like you do the same. Those joint appointments that can be so beneficial. Um, and I know we're not the only ones out there that are doing work like that. That's right. Um, and I, I wanted to say too, that there's some babies that are so resilient that like once they get that tongue release, they can just figure it out on their own. Um, 
But there are kids that, you know, some, sometimes they're so stiff and tight and they've had a rough delivery or whatever the case is, they really need a lot of help and support even before they do the phrenectomy. And that's where having a team approach really comes in because I think the timing of the release is really just as important as the release itself um, so that we can get the baby prepped. We don't want to create this oral aversion and then have them do it and they fully, you know, resist the breast altogether. So there's so much that goes into it and it really needs all of us to put our heads together to come up with all the different things that work best for each individual baby because they are each different. I love that you said that. I am a huge supporter of obviously, you know, not just going straight for the phrenectomy, work with your IBCLC, but then also, you know, get a body worker involved. What would you say, like, obviously every baby's different. So, you know, I, I probably will answer the question similarly to you, but in terms of a baby, just generally a tongue tied baby, maybe nothing crazy with birth trauma going on in general, like how often or how far ahead of that phrenectomy procedure should they see someone like you? Um, definitely. You know, it really depends on a lot of different things in terms of medical history, birth history, feeding, you know, if, if the baby's actually even eating at all. Um, but I would say a lot of the benefit of going in there before, there's, there's a lot of different benefits, but one, it gets the parent comfortable in the baby's mouth, just having them go in and, you know, move their fingers around in there, having the baby get used to fingers in their mouth. Because as you know, uh, most dentists have a pretty lengthy post-op protocol that they have to follow for weeks at a time, several times a day. Um, so you want the baby to just be getting used to that as well. And just a lot of education to prep the parents for what's about to happen, what to expect, the side effects, and timelines. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And I always encourage parents, the first experience the baby has with fingers in the mouth should be an enjoyable, pleasurable one. We don't want to be adding to the trauma or discomfort that they're experiencing. And all of a sudden, you know, those parents are telling me my baby screams when I try to go do the exercises post-op or, you know, they're biting down. Um, getting them to be relaxed and used to it ahead of time goes a long way and there's, you know, I, I definitely do this as well, where there's some oral motor exercises that we can be doing ahead of time to optimize function, but then may reduce tension or set some good, you know, uh, neuromuscular pathways that are going to help that baby feed even better post-op. Um, and I'm sure, like you said, you know, there's a lot of things to take into effect, but if, if there's a tongue tie, you know, chances are there's maybe other things going on as well. Like you mentioned, it could have been the circumstances of the birth or a lot of other things. And if we don't address those and we just address the tongue tie, it sounds like we're not treating the whole picture. That's right. And actually one of the um, greatest things about me getting in and seeing these babies so early is that it's allowed me to catch so many conditions that maybe a mom might not know to even look for, but I'm seeing these babies, you know, in their first month of life. And as you know, babies just learn so much quicker. Their, their neural system is this like clean slate where I can go in and teach them what I need to teach them. I can change the tone of um, the muscle that I see. So when I get in there early, there's so much more I could do. And it, it just takes so much less time. Um, and a baby, you know, that's only days old, I can switch things so quickly where in like two, three visits, everything is good. Whereas when I see kids that are much older that have more 
support habits, um, it takes longer um, with, to reverse their compensations and those kinds of things. Mm, that's such a good point too. Everything you're saying is just magic. And I wanted to bring in a question that I got asked on Instagram the other day. And the question like blew my mind because to me, I just like, I know the answer and it's so obvious, but not everybody does, especially probably the listeners. And you just don't know what you don't know unless you're someone who treats this stuff. But how can birth impact breastfeeding? So if they're, you know, if, if birth does not go as physiologically designed and planned, what are some of the things there that actually hinder baby's ability to breastfeed well? Right. That's definitely a loaded question. Um, <laughs> and so a lot of times, I mean, first of all, I don't think we will ever know the full story um, because we don't see these babies during their, you know, um, prepartum period. Um, but I would say that generally babies who have a rough delivery, sometimes in utero, they are, you know, in a, in a specific position that maybe doesn't allow them to just magically come out of the canal the way that it should in a utopian world. Um, and so, you know, if their one shoulder is jammed up against their ear and they're tucked under mom's ribs, then sometimes it's harder for them to slide out. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure with every um, push and whatever. So when the babies come out, it's been a long journey or they've been, you know, it's rough. Their, their neck is a little stiff. Their shoulders a little stiff. Um, you know, their, their chin is tucked into their chest. And when they've been um, sucking in utero, they're more chomping rather than having a nice suck where the tongue is sort of the main mover um, and they're using their jaw. So all this ends up playing into how they're going to breastfeed. Um, sometimes if the tongue is really stuck to the bottom of the, the mouth, they end up using their jaw. And then you'll see other muscles tighten and stiffen when they're feeding. And I'm sure you see this over and over again, too, where if the system isn't working the way it was designed, the baby is going to kick in all these other muscles to try and get this food. Um, and so you'll see a lot of compensation going on. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's been a phrase that I know has been tossed around in our communities that compensation is not the same as competency. And we're oh, not yeah. just looking for any breastfeeding. Now, that's obviously better than no breastfeeding, but if breastfeeding is happening in a dysfunctional way, it ends up creating dysfunction down the road. And since you're such an expert in, you know, infant development and things like that, I'd love for you to talk about some of the developmental implications when we don't address these things early on in the baby's life. So one of the big major things that I see over and over when I first started this in my practice um, is like torticollis. And torticollis basically, I mean, in, in its purest definition, it's when the sternocleidomastoid muscle, which is one muscle on the side of the neck, is shorter than the other side. So the baby will tilt its head to one side, have trouble turning its head to one side. Um, but I find that almost at, when I first started this, every single baby I thought had torticollis. Um, and then I realized that it was just really like a body tightness issue where that's what it looked like to me. Um, or sometimes their whole body would be in the shape of a C. Um, and then when we work all that stiffness and tightness out, everything will sort of figure its way out. Um, and now I forgot what your question was. 
<laughs> well, that's okay. So, so if that tension is left in place, though, if we never address that, then what are some of the implications for them down the road, especially when it comes to their development? So development actually happens in a series of ways. So initially a baby has um, reflexive movements and then as the upper parts of the brain develop and kick in, they have more voluntary movement. And so when they're not able to move voluntarily, like looking right and left, um, then they start to have trouble with their developmental milestones. So if they're unable to look right and left, then their shoulder and their spine won't rotate well, so then they might not roll on time. Um, and then that just starts leading to a whole bunch of other developmental delays down the road. So I see kids that are sometimes six, eight months that aren't rolling. And when I'm doing my evaluation, I'm like, oh, these guys have a tongue tie and nobody ever saw it or caught it um, early enough. So there really is a big correlation between delays and development because of this stiffness and tightness that happens. Um, and, you know, so many times I hear moms that have given up on breastfeeding in those initial stages because it was painful or because it was too hard or because they could only get them on one side and they ran out of milk. So there's so many different reasons that I see these delays, but there's always a link. Um, to feeding in those initial stages. Yes, yes, I see that too. And, you know, for the listeners who are hearing this and they don't know, what is the normal timeline for these milestones like rolling over, sitting up, walking? And I, I asked that question because, you know, just when I meet people in passing and, you know, maybe a new acquaintance, a neighbor or something, and, uh, you know, they're telling me their 18-month-old, like, doesn't walk yet. And they're like, oh, he's just slow to walk. And now I get it. Like, you don't want to think, you know, anything's wrong with your child. And we're not here to say anything is, quote, unquote, wrong with your child. But there is sort of an expected timeline of when certain things are going to happen. And I'd love for parents to be empowered with that information. So if, like you just said, if there's a six month old, and they're not rolling over yet. That's, that's a little bit of a warning sign that we need to pay attention to as parents. So if you could just give us a little overview of that timeline, I think that'd be really great. Sure. And I, I'm so right there with you about empowering parents because I never like to say anything is wrong with the baby. I think a lot of times we just have to position them a certain way or encourage them to play a certain way and then they'll get it. Um, you know, with kids that have no tightness or stiffness or anything wrong, they will figure all this stuff out on their own if you're leaving them on the floor to play. So um, a lot of times it's really just coaching parents, showing them what to do and showing them how to get their kids to meet those milestones. But generally, I would say in terms of like red flags, um, you want a baby to be rolling between three and five months. You want them to be sitting around six months. Um, if they're not sitting by eight months, I would definitely look into it and try to figure out if there's a reason for it. Um, and when you say sitting, does that mean that you prop your baby up and sit them? Or does that mean that they get into a seated position on their own? No, I would mean if you were to sit them down, that they would stay sitting. They probably between seven and nine months is where they start to push themselves into sitting. Where if you, you know, left them asleep in the crib when you came back to check on them, they'd be sitting up. Okay. Um, on their own. Um, and then also between seven to nine months is when they start to crawl. Um, and then soon after crawling, they're going to start to pull to stand and cruise side to side. Um, then they're going to start to squat to pick up objects um, 
up from the floor um, and then they start to let go and then they walk. Um, so the general rule of thumb for us is that um, you want them to be walking by 12 months, um, but we do give them a little bit of a leeway till 15 months. And if they're not walking by 15 months, I think you should definitely get help. Um, and again, that's not to say that anything is wrong with them, but it's just a physical therapist can quickly identify where there is a little bit of muscle weakness and address it. Um, yeah, no, that's a really great point. And I think, again, like you said, sometimes it's just a little education. Sometimes it's just maybe changing up the, the environment for this particular baby. Um, I had like a wonder baby who we, we actually worked with Michelle Emanuel with her. And of course I had great body workers and everything here. And she did not skip the crawling phase. Uh, a lot of people get concerned when they hear about early walkers and skipping the crawling phase, but she was walking at eight months and it was nuts. Like she was walking, holding onto a wall at six months and it blew my mind, but we just put her on the floor and did tummy time and all these other therapeutic things and worked with our body workers um, because she had so much tension. And I'm saying that as a point that that's not everybody's standard. Like, please don't think something is wrong if your baby's not walking by eight months. And I kind of wish she wasn't because it was hard, but um, <laughs> that to me is just a sign that like, because we did all the work though, then we got her, like we weren't playing catch up basically um, later on in life. And so I really valued that very, very early body work. Also, she stayed in the womb a few extra weeks. So she kind of came out maybe a little more mature than yeah. most babies. Um, yeah, no, but if we hadn't done that body work, I mean, the, I look at photos of her in her first few weeks of life and she was so incredibly tight and colicky all the time. And I couldn't imagine if that had been her whole, you know, infancy. That's right. One of the beautiful things that I love about uh -oh, this. Oh, I lost your audio. Hello. <laughs> oh no. Can you hear me? I didn't change anything. Do you? Um, oh, it's so weird. Shoot. I did not change a thing. Um, yeah. hmm. Say something. Hi there. Can you hear me? Okay. The mic is Hello? picking it up. Hello? Man, we were just getting really good stuff. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh, what the heck? I did not touch anything. Test, test. I got nothing. That's so weird. Uh, let me try again. Something else here. Okay, try talking now. Hello? I got it. Okay. Okay, good. What was I saying? <laughs> I have no idea. What the heck? Okay, I was talking about my baby. It was great to have help for her. Oh, um, I was saying. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So one of the things that Michelle Emanuel talks about is that when you treat babies this young, everything is reversible. So we can get in there and make all these changes and educate parents on the importance of tummy time and what that independent floor time can do for your child. And it really is, like you said, almost like a miracle work. 
Um, but I remember being in school and being so fascinated about child development. And it's not just something that magically happens. It's actually muscles that develop. And with the curiosity and the drive to move that these children have, it just facilitates all these things for them. So it's such a beautiful thing to watch babies' minds develop and their muscles develop at the same time to get this um, regular child development. Um, and so, you know, some kids takes a little bit longer depending on what's going on, but um, most of the time in just one visit, like a parent will see a big change um, right away because it's so easy to change when, when they do, you know, the recommendations. Mm, yes, I love that. I think that's just such a great point. And, you know, I get this question a lot. Sometimes I have parents who feel very hesitant about the body work, and I feel like one of my jobs sometimes is to sort of be a salesperson for you, uh, which is really funny. So um, I am for hire. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I only sell what's needed, but I don't make money off of it. In fact, I always tell my clients, me referring you for body work or to get a tongue tie treated probably results in way less revenue for me because you don't need my help for much longer when we get a whole team and just get it fixed. Um, but one of the questions I, I do get from parents is they feel a little hesitant. Like, you know, they're, they've heard of PT or chiropractic or other things for adults, but when it comes to babies, they feel really hesitant. And, and I understand that because, you know, you just brought this new child into the world. They, they're fragile. You have, you know, probably just sworn to protect them. Right. And to give them into someone else's hands that you don't know can feel very scary for a lot of parents. And so for those parents who are listening and going, I don't know, like, do, does my baby really need PT or do they really need body work? And then also the other question they might have is, well, can't I just massage my baby? I do baby massage. Um, what's, what's the difference there between massage and like what you do? And then also just explaining how what you do is, is different for babies versus adults. Right. So one of the things I always try to do is ask parents that have already worked with me to go online and to write a review. And then I tell the IBCLCs to go and, um, tell their patients to check out the reviews online because parents are really good at enunciating and describing how the therapy is good and why it was beneficial and how it helped them in terms of feeding or whatever the case is. Um, so I let the parents do all the selling and you guys as well um, for me um, because sometimes for sure parents don't know exactly what it is that a physical therapist can do. Um, and it doesn't look like you know, the therapy that they're used to in a typical physical therapy clinic where there's machines that they put on you and they make you go into the gym and do a ton of exercises. So it right. looks no, like, no TENS know, units for babies. But I do have to say that once parents do come, um, they quickly realize sort of the benefit of it. And I think even just the knowledge that they gain from understanding what muscles have to turn on, how they can get them to turn on, how they can get the ones that are working wrong to shut off, um, you know, how their jaw is driving the movement instead of the tongue doing the work. And then once we get the tongue moving, the brain realizes, oh, this is like a big major muscle um, and it's so much easier to move than the jaw. Um, and so, um, parents will quickly see the benefit of it. 
Um, but I, I understand that it's hard. It's something that, you know, I'm sure where you are as well, it's not covered, it's not in network. Um, and so there is a lot of resistance to it because it's, it's a highly specialized field. Yes, that is such a good point. And, you know, I found just for my own personal health um, and of course my clients as well, that a lot of the best providers, you know, tend maybe to not be covered by insurance, unfortunately. But it is one of those things that if you're able to invest in it now, uh, it's going to pay dividends later on in life and save so much more money. Um, and one of the things too is if anyone's listening to this podcast, I know I definitely have a lot of pregnant listeners. If you, you know, if it's your first baby or um, if it's a subsequent baby and you've had problems in the past, uh, I know a lot of my clients have asked for baby shower type of stuff for, you know, sometimes just money for these kinds of expenses that come up um, and just to prepare to have a little fund, you know, especially if you've had a tongue-tied baby in the past, probably expect that, I don't want to, you know, be pessimistic, but it's a potential that you're going to have another one. And so, if you have to pay out of pocket, a lot of times you pay out of pocket for the procedure. It's not a preventive procedure. So if you haven't met your deductible, that kind of stuff, you know, PT, chiropractic, all that. And then even lactation consultants, unfortunately, are supposed to be covered by insurance, but insurance companies like to play tricky games. So that doesn't always work either. And you totally deserve the support and your baby does too. And my question for you, Dr. Gigi, is like, can we live in the same city? Because <laughs> I just, there's never enough providers. The ones we have here are amazing and they're wonderful and I love them so much and I'm so glad they're here. Um, but you know, for those parents who don't have someone like you in their area, what do you suggest for them if they are really struggling? Maybe they live rurally like, and they have a hard time accessing, seeing someone like yourself in person. What are your suggestions for them? So I would definitely say to get connected on Instagram because that's sort of how I actually found Michelle Emanuel. She puts out so much great information online. Um, and then I also just started offering some Zoom consultations and I'm trying to keep it as affordable as possible, especially in this time. Um, but just to reach out, I think that moms um, have a gut instinct, their mommy instinct, and it's strong. And, um, you know, if they feel like something is not right, it's probably not right. And we're here to help them. Um, and just not to suffer by yourselves or to give up because there are answers. And most of us providers, if you, you know, send us a question online or send us an email, we're willing to help. You know, it's not like, um, we're, none of us are doing this for the money. We're doing it to make a living. Um, but so many of us are willing to help. Um, I can at least speak for myself that, you know, I'm in my own Instagram account. So if you send me a message, I'm not going to say, hey, make an appointment. I'm not going to talk to you. Um, so we're always willing to, to help and give you tips and tricks to see if you can do this on your own. And then if you need a little bit of extra support, then we're going to be here for you. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I try to offer a lot of stuff on my social media and this podcast as well. Um, but I'm also going to be the first person to tell you, hey, sounds like your situation is really unique and you've tried a bunch of things and we really should set up an appointment. So I always try to tell people, 
you know, kind of preface it like, I wouldn't be telling you this unless I really thought it was needed. So there is a lot, you know, parents are smart, right? They're researchers. There's a lot they can do on their own, but sometimes you need an extra helping hand. And I love that you're on Instagram like me. Where can people find you on Instagram? So my, um, I have two different Instagram handles. Milk Matters PT is the one specifically devoted just for tongue tie babies. Um, and I specialize particularly in babies who are under six months um, in terms of tongue tie. Once they're eating solid foods and whatnot, I, I refer out. That's not my area of expertise. Um, and then I have in-home pediatric PT, which is just my regular physical therapy business. Um, so I have lots of developmental things on there, tips and tricks, and lots of ways that parents can play with their baby to help boost their development and encourage that normal child development. Oh, that is so amazing. I love it. And I'm so glad that we could have you on the show today. And is there anywhere else on the internet that you'd want to direct anyone listening to find out more information or connect with you? So definitely you could send me a DM on any one of those. And I have um, a website, www.inhomepediatricpt.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Are there any last tips or information or a message maybe that you wanted to share with our listeners just to wrap this up? Um, I think I just want to empower parents and tell them you don't have to go through this alone. I mean, ask for help. We are here to help. We've seen it all over the years and there's always a solution. There's no, don't give up and um, trust your gut. Mm, I love that. It's so perfect. Such a great end to this amazing interview with you. I feel like this is one where parents might go back and listen again, just because I feel like what you said was so simple, but also a lot to unpack for those who might be new to this information. So thank you, Dr. Gigi, for being here. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. Me too. Did you know most moms stop breastfeeding in the first month postpartum? I believe succeeding at breastfeeding means having the right mindset. In fact, studies show that the number one factor that determines breastfeeding success is commitment, which is why I've created my incredible audio download of breastfeeding affirmations where I give you actionable mantras so you can breastfeed your baby with confidence and peace of mind. And best of all, it's free. To get access to this audio and PDF, simply visit holisticlactation.com slash mantras, and you can get started right now.